Well, good morning. I'm Eric Anderson, one of the elders here at Faith Church, and it really is my privilege to get to open God's Word this morning with you and to, to be encouraged by a, an amazing story that we get to hear. Uh, and to, this morning's message, by the way, is from Esther chapter 4, and we're going to continue that series right now. So open your Bibles or your cell phones or tablets or whatever it is you do to, to uh, read God's Word. Um, and I just encourage you to follow along. We're going to read the whole, all of chapter 4 uh, in pieces this morning. And we're listening in on a conversation between Mordecai and essentially his daughter, Esther. It's actually his younger cousin, but uh, Mordecai, uh, the older cousin, uh, essentially raised Esther, and who has become queen. And just to back up a little bit about where we are in this, in this saga, it, uh, you heard from Pastor Mike the last few weeks we have heard about a vain and unstable king uh, named Ahasuerus, uh, who, because of his vanity and his desire to parade his wife around like a trophy wife, uh, he deposed and got rid of Queen Vashti because she was not interested in just being eye candy for the people and really ended up uh, perhaps standing up for herself in a moment. And uh, so Esther's, uh, Esther is this amazing, beautiful Jewish woman who has been uh, anointed by God, but, but also anointed by the king because he, she caught his eye uh, to join him in the palace and ultimately became queen. And along the way, uh, Mordecai had a, had a couple of experiences, one good and one bad, as his relationship, it related to his relationship to the king. First of all, he had exposed a plot against the king uh, and didn't get a whole lot of credit for it, uh, until later in the story, which you'll hear about next week. But uh, Mordecai was, was a part of uh, helping the king retain his, his crown and, and thwarted an assassination attempt. But then later on, uh, Mordecai also refused to give honor uh, or bow to another character named Haman, who is uh, another equally rotten individual uh, who is kind of the right-hand man or the toady of the king. I don't know what his role was exactly. But as when Mordecai did that, for whatever motive it was, uh, he brought about a, a proclamation uh, from Haman that reached the king's ears that all of the, all of the Jews would be destroyed because of it. And so we pick up the story in chapter 4 with Mordecai having intentionally or un otherwise, probably unintentionally, uh, brought about a, a decree of destruction for, God, for God's people uh, because, of the, uh, because of the fact that he stood up to Haman. And so that's where we pick up this conversation here this morning. And we're going to hear how Haman, how, excuse me, how Mordecai and Esther interact for most of this chapter uh, and then move into action at the very end. Um, and so I'm going to start in verse 1. We're going to read just the first three verses and talk, uh, talk about lamenting just for a moment. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and went out into the midst of the city. And he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command and his decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes." Well, perhaps it's obvious why there might be some lamenting going on. I want, I want to spend a minute just talking about what this really means. 
the, the idea of, of a lament. It's, it's more than just being super sad about something that's happened in our lives. Uh, it does, of course, imply a tremendous grief, so, some sort of response to either something that's happened to us uh, by another individual. It could be, in this case, uh, something that Mordecai had done uh, that had caused great pain and suffering for others. And it's very, very vocal. The lament is, is an out loud kind of thing. I'm picturing Mordecai kind of wailing. Not, not necessarily, people around him may have no idea what it is that he's really uh, so troubled about, but it's a very vocal expression of sadness and sorrow. And what's implied in this is that he's crying out to God. This, this idea of, of sackcloth and ashes and lamenting is, is in the scriptures, you always find it as towards God himself. The entire book of Lamentations is a wonderful teaching on, on, on just this, on the lament that, and all the elements of it and how it relates to the, uh, how we are to deal with trouble in our lives. <clears throat> and one of the other really important parts of, of a lament is the idea of repentance. And that might not jump right out at you, but when, when we are intimate with God in our most intimate encounters, uh, we almost always find that deep sorrow and repentance of our own sinfulness and the, uh, and the sinful, sinfulness of our people sort of go hand in hand with this idea of lamenting. There is a, a, it, it, the book of Lamentations describes an acknowledgement of sin of, our, of us individually and as, of a people, the idea of repentance and turning away from that which we know to be wrong, declaring the goodness of God and trusting him completely. So there's a lot going on in just wailing in that moment. Uh, perhaps not at first, but because sometimes when we experience difficulty, it's all we can do to even speak and cry out. But that's exactly what's going on right here. There are several examples in scripture of, of lamenting uh, that, that support the idea that that repentance has been a part of this. Uh, in Nehemiah, he hears this incredibly sad uh, uh, report from Jerusalem that the walls are broken down and the people are in, in just in a mess. And the first thing he does is he cries out to God and he said, Lord, we're, we're a sinful people. We have, we have neglected your word. We have not followed your commands. And, and he repents on behalf of his own people. Uh, and the next thing you see is that uh, the that God appoints Nehemiah to be a part of the solution, but his first reaction was a reaction of, of really trying to ascribe a corporate repentance to the, uh, to the lament and to the trouble that his people had. In Jonah chapter 3, you probably know the, the story of the reluctant uh, prophet Jonah who brought, um, who brought the, uh, the word to the Ninevites and said that God was going to destroy them. Uh, in verse 5 of chapter 3, the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. And surprisingly to, ne to Nehemiah, they reacted exactly as uh, we see Mordecai doing. And then when Jesus was talking and teaching, uh, he was talking to the people of a couple of towns in Luke chapter 10. And he says, Woe to you, Chorazon. Woe to you, Bethsaida. If the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. So you see the idea, the sackcloth, the idea of ashes on your head, the wailing, the lamenting. It's related to repentance. 
and I would say maybe not always, but almost, almost always related to sin in our lives. In fact, I'm going to say it. It is always related to sin because even when we experience something that's tragic, that's unrelated to what we've, something we've done wrong or something someone else has done wrong, we can always trace those things to the sin of Adam, to the fall, and the, to the terribly difficult life that we often live just because of the effects of sin around us, whether directly or indirectly. So how does Esther respond, hearing Mordecai wailing? She's up in the, literally up in the palace, kind of looking down at a distance. And by the way, all the interaction this morning is not face-to-face between Esther and Mordecai. There's all these go-betweens. There's some, some eunuchs and others that, that kind of bounce back and forth communicating uh, for Esther and Mordecai to, to try to, to talk to one another. And so Esther's first response is in verse 4. And she says this, when Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her the queen told her about Mordecai, the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. So I'm kind of picturing this, maybe not intentionally, but I'm picturing Esther being just slightly detached from what's really going on. Uh, she's like, well, those, those, that sackcloth looks really uncomfortable. You know, and you're wailing. We stop wailing. You know, it's almost like, here, and it sends down some good clothes. Now, maybe I'm speculating too much, but it's almost like she's saying, oh, turn that frown upside down. It's okay. You're fine. I don't know why you're so sad. You know, sure, life is sure great, isn't it? And I got to admit, I mean, maybe I'm projecting because that's how I sometimes react. I mean, I, I just always am grieved when people are sad. And when you, ha- when you have the gift of encouragement, you sometimes do it to a fault, and you don't leave room for people to just be in mourning and wailing. You're trying to fix it. You're trying to get them better. You send them clean clothes, you know, just because that would maybe make them feel better. And in reality, uh, that was probably, that was at least not enough uh, in terms of how uh, God was about to deal with this situation. So, so Esther, I'm not saying she did anything wrong, but I am saying she might have been a little bit detached because she actually had no idea what was really going on. Um, and then that's when we move to the third part of their interaction. And that is when Esther finally says, has a question and Mordecai responds to it. And, uh, you know, by the way, that's, that's good uh, advice if you want to be a counselor is to ask questions instead of just jumping in and trying to fix it before you know what's going on. Uh, and so that's what we see here uh, in verses 5 through 9. Um, and I'll just kind of summarize it here. I won't read the whole section. Basically, Esther asked Mordecai, what is wrong? What is going on? And Mordecai explained his lamenting. He said, Haman has a plan to kill all the Jews by the decree of the king, by the decree of your husband that that you uh, haven't talked to in a while. And so you need to be aware of this. And then Mordecai said, by the way, queen, uh, you need to go to the king you need to be a part of this. You need to go to the king and beg his favor on behalf of, of our people. And so Esther is immediately drawn into the drama right here. And I'm, I'm trying to imagine for a moment what, how Mordecai is really, really feeling and why he's been lamenting, okay? Um, basically, this, the truth is this. He's he said he wouldn't honor or bow to Haman, and now all his people are going to be wiped out. Okay, that's worthy of lamenting. That is more than just something wrong with me. An entire people are at risk of being destroyed by the king because of something I did. 
you know what? I, yeah, lament is right. That is the right response in that moment. And whether, you know, what, whether what Mordecai did, and we heard about it last week, was, was that born out of the best and most godly motives, or it was just a response to, uh, to Haman because he didn't like the guy, uh, it doesn't matter. You know, it doesn't matter because the, the result of what he did is profoundly awful. And you know what? This happens to us all the time in our lives. We do things, we, may, we say things, and it could be out of good motives or bad. It could be accidental. It could be intentional. And, there, and this incredibly terrible thing comes out of it. Painful, difficult, challenging, not what we wanted. And you just kind of wonder, how can I even bear this? You know, the, the, the burden of what Mordecai felt is, is overwhelming. And I think each of us has probably experienced that somewhere along the way. We, we discipline a child and their reaction is really bad. You, you make a decision that affects other people and they go off the deep end over it. Uh, it might not have much to do with you in the first place, but you were the catalyst for that kind of thing. I've experienced it a lot in my life. Um, when I moved the family to New Mexico from Colorado, you know, I had people in Colorado like wailing, going, you're, this is horrible. I can't believe you're doing that. What is wrong with you? You're going to go to a foreign country? You know, you're, gonna, you're leaving us and everything. Everything's perfect about your life here in Colorado. You know, and you're going to New Mexico. Who, who goes to New Mexico? You know, and, and I, I just remember that feeling of guilt. I really did. And I know that pe the, the people that talked that way to us, they weren't trying to dump guilt. They were trying to say how much they love us. But I, I just felt terrible. Uh, as a boss uh, at work, I remember a few years ago, I had to lay off 30 people. And probably 28 of them, it was really, really painful and ugly and awful. And I wasn't, I don't know if it was my fault, you know, if companies grow and they shrink. But I got to be, I was the boss and I got to uh, do things and say things that had a profound and in some cases bad impact on their lives. And it was rough. The first six or seven were really rough, and after that, the next 20, it was like, yeah, 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 I know, I'm the bad guy, go ahead, good luck, good luck. you know. I had kind of gotten a little bit jaded, and I wasn't lamenting as much anymore. Um, as an elder, I've been involved in many decisions in the church that have an impact on somebody else and a result that I didn't hope for or expect in the way they reacted. Um, maybe I did it, per maybe we did it perfect, maybe we didn't, it doesn't matter. There's a response, there's a, there's a, impact on other people that's much bigger than ourselves those are the kind of things that mordecai was experiencing that's why he was crying out to god and that's why this was so difficult for him but now we see M mordecai beginning to transition from this lamenting and by the way the implied praying he's going before god he's clearly wrestling with god and interacting with god on this and uh because now he has a plan there's something that needs to be done he told esther you need to go to the king you, i can't do this you need to go to the king and plead on behalf of our people and he's very clear about it to her and i'll bet you she was surprised you know what i'll bet she was like me i just thought this was about you and the next thing you know she sort of said well what's wrong and she's Part of the, she's going to be part of the solution. She got drawn into it. He said, yeah, you, you need, we, you're the only one that's going to you know, be used by God in this case. And I think that was a shock to her. I don't think she expected it. I think 
She was isolated from what was going on and, and had no idea that that one was coming. Uh, maybe she wouldn't have asked what was wrong in the first place had she known that. But, and let's look at how Esther responded. We'll jump now to verses 10 and 11. And uh, her response to Mordecai's uh, command or his request uh, was, was probably not, not that unexpected. Um, but here's what happens, in, starting in verse 10. Then Esther spoke to Hathash and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, there's that internet, by the way, there's that, they don't talk in face to face. And go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I have not been called to, the king, to come to the king for these 30 days. So first of all, let me just say that it's probably realistic and reasonable that Esther would be a little bit terrified. Uh, this king is a wackadoodle. He is really a, a self-centered drunk, all right? And he, you don't know how he's going to react. And, it, and she probably knew that he liked her a lot, right? And, I mean, she, he made her queen, after all. But she saw the last queen and how long that lasted, right? And it's like, wow, Vashi was really pretty, and she's gone, you know, because, because of something kind of small. So, so her fear is, is justified in my mind. Um, but then I think she's also fear, fearful to, to a fault, maybe even reactionary kind of fearful. You know that feeling of terror when something happens and you, you haven't had time to process and you just go, whoa, no, you know, just it's a very emotional, very human response um, because she just jumps in right away like the, with the junior high thing. Everybody knows, everybody knows that this king is scary and powerful and he could put me to death everyone knows it's been a month and and that he might not welcome me and everyone knows how weak and pitiful and hopeless i am i'm just a queen and everybody knows that you know god can't use me and and what did you do mordecai and everybody knows that i can't help and so it's your problem and I, i'm really overstated what that's not in the scripture okay i'm sort of speculating but i i get her i get that feeling of what did you do you know, kind of uh, after hearing that story, and then she's getting drawn into it, and her first reaction is, is perfectly normal, I suppose, in some way, but, um, but it reflects fear, um, and it reflects several things that I think we've all experienced, and one is, one is that we have that genuine fear that, that kind of settles in when we haven't brought something before the Lord, when we haven't talked to Him about it, or when we are quick and reactionary, and, and that first emotional wave uh, comes over us. Um, we were also, and she was prone to kind of a natural self-protection. Like, well, I can't go see the king. He might, he might, smear, he might cream me. He might put me to death. Um, and so the big challenge that came to her was her, her first reaction is kind of self-protection. There was also kind of, a, I, I think, a denial uh, that he, she is even affected by what Mordecai has done and what this proclamation is that the king and Haman have accomplished. Um, it's a denial that they're called by that she's called by God to be involved, and a denial that she would even be impacted. It's like she forgot she was Jewish for a moment. Like that was the proclamation, um, and it's almost like sometimes our fear makes us irrational. We can't think straight, 
and we do things that uh, would actually bring about our own destruction. You know, if she decided the thing to do was say absolutely nothing, it would have ensured her own demise because, the, because Haman would have been after every Jew in the land and she was, she was top dog. She was as doomed as the rest of them, but she wasn't thinking that way. She was thinking about the more imminent threat of coming to the king and being terrified of that. It's a little bit irrational because that's what fear does to us. It's, it's part of the human condition. I'm not trying to, to slam her too much, but on the other hand, you can see that she hasn't had a chance to go before the Lord with this situation and ask God what it is that she is supposed to do. So Mordecai gets another chance to talk to her. This is his uh, third discussion, third interaction and it's his strong exhortation to Esther, uh, and we find it in verses 12 to 14. So follow along with me there as, as we see this progression. By the way, this is a, an amazing progression within Mordecai of confidence in God, clarity about what's going to happen, and boldness in going to the queen. So here's, here's our interaction starting in verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. And Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's household will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. So, wow, all of a sudden, Mordecai is a prophet. He's speaking, essentially, the words of God to her. Um, he has heard from God, and the implication is he has been praying, and he's been speaking and talking to God, and most likely also reading his word, which says that God is not going to let his people perish. And he speaks the truth to Esther that God will not let all these people be destroyed. It's the truth. It's the truth from the word and, and no doubt from the, the, the word of God, the voice of God himself as well. And, uh, but he does say, Would you, wouldn't you care to join God in, in this? Because if you don't, you're going to perish, you and your whole household. And that's a very prophetic word that implies uh, it's a lot of boldness. And I, I believe that only comes from when, when a person has spent concerted time before God and lifting up a situation that they would proclaim something that specific and that truthful. He says, you're not immune from this, from this danger that's going on. And God is going to accomplish his purposes with you or without you. And uh, that's kind of sobering, isn't it? I mean, you, uh, it, it implies a, a, bit, a lot of weakness on our part to not be able to actually change the course of the universe and that God will accomplish what he will accomplish. But it's also hand in hand, as God declares himself to be sovereign, he also calls us to obedience and calls us to join him in, in accomplishing his sovereign work. It's, it's actually kind of mysterious to me, and I try not to think too hard about it because, because I think, well, I'll just do what I want and God will do what he wants. You know, that's the ultimate uh, passive reaction, but there's this calling to obedience because of God's sovereignty in the situation. And then, then Mordecai says there is a God-ordained moment for you, and at that moment is now for you to act and for you to be a part of this story, to be a part of the solution to this terrible dilemma that we find ourselves in. 
And so, wow, you just, you hear Mordecai and his boldness, uh, and it's, it's really quite a transformation from just wailing. And uh, it's been a part of that process of him spending time with God, uh, silently and behind the scenes, but we know that's got to be true. So then, then uh, we conclude the, the story part of this with, with number six, which is the, the obedience of Esther and Mordecai. And that's in verses 15 through 17, where both of them are found to be faithful and obedient to what God has called them to do. So here's how this part of the story finishes. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king. Though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. So that ends chapter 4, and what you see there, uh, there's, a, there's a bunch of little uh, principles in just three verses here. And the first one is that Esther showed great wisdom by praying before acting. The, the idea of holding a fast for three days is not to just have a weight loss plan. The idea was to pray. That's what fasting and praying always go hand in hand. When we fast as God's people, the intent is to be reminded of our desperate need for him and pray and spend time with him. So she's calling Mordecai to engage all the people everywhere that are affected by this and pray for three days before she goes and sees the king because she's still scared to death, and rightly so. But she's like, I want a prayer army in front of me before, to pave the road before I walk this road. And I think there's great wisdom in that to have before she just reacts and, and tries to fix everything on her, under her own power. So that calling... To corporate prayer far and wide is just very, very spiritually minded. And it, it implies that she's understanding that, bef- that God uh, is the one that's going to do this great work. She cannot do this on her own. Um, and there's also this understanding that God is sovereign. She admits it here. God is in control. If I perish, I perish. If this is what God wants for me, okay. I'm willing to set aside my agenda, my, my priorities, my comfort, in the palace, she's in good shape there, you know, one of the, the wives of the king, probably living high and, and well, and uh, nope, if I perish, I perish. I'm trusting God, uh, and I trust in his sovereignty, and I'm willing to lay down my life for this cause, and that, that's, a, that's a radical transformation from that initial re- reaction of fear, and, uh, and so she knows that God's in control of her people, and even of herself, and of the mind of this crazy king. God is in control in spite of the randomness of how this guy has uh, reacted in the past. She knows that God is in control. And then we find this dependence one, one to another. Mordecai and Esther have this great partnership now in this, in this work going forward. It's, I'd even call it mutual submission. You know, in Ephesians 5.21, the scriptures tell us to submit to one another. And in just a few verses, we see first Mordecai commanding Esther to do something, kind of that dad figure, right? Kind of jumping in, going, you, you got to go do this. And, and you know, every, your, your well-being depends on it. And he's speaking with absolute authority. And she reacts and says, okay, yes, you're right. That's what I'm going to do. Then in the next verse, <laughs> Queen Esther, who really has the authority, at least by the government, says, 
to, to Mordecai, go and tell the people that for the next three days you're going to pray before I do anything. And he went away and did everything that Esther asked him to do. He, he submitted to her at the very end and said, that's, that's the plan. Because it wasn't, probably in his mind, that wasn't how it was going to work. But okay. And he went and, and got the people to pray specifically for what, had to, what Esther had to go and do. So that you see in one moment someone submitting to another and then the, the next moment it's backwards. You know, it's kind of like life in the family. You know, when my wife said she would marry me and, and uh, in the vows talked about submission, we know that to be true and she lives that out. But there's so many elements of our lives that, I've, that, that she's really got the, she's got the stick on it, especially as it relates to the home. And it doesn't do well for me to always be wanting to change how she wants to, to handle a lot of elements of our home. And uh, so I've, in a sense, submitted to her in that regard because I trust her and I know that her judgment about, about many things, about how we interact with our children, how we, how we live, how we handle money, if, if it weren't for her, I, I would be off in the weeds somewhere. In the church, you know, I'm an elder, right? But if but if I were to, to decide that all of the policies that the deacons came up with didn't apply to me, well, that would not go well. Uh, our deacons would not be very happy and be, because I decided to you know, throw two-liter bottles of Diet Coke all over the sanctuary every Sunday because I'm an elder, right? Or, or how about this one? How about the parents of the President of the United States? You know, how, do they get, how do they react to the authority of their, of their son? Do they say, oh, I used to change your diaper, you know, you just do what you want, but I'm doing what I want, because you're, you, you know, you're not, I'm not going to sit underneath you, you're not the boss of me, right? Well, that's almost exactly what's going on here, and you see Mordecai very quickly re resume the position authoritatively uh, that he has under the queen and respond in a very godly way and, and immediately be part of the plan that she proclaimed having five minutes before been the one exhorting her to a path forward. So it's mutual submission in, in, a, in a few verses here. And the truth is we need each other. And we have to listen to each other. We cannot depend on ourselves to always make wise decisions. We desperately need each other. I can tell you the most healthy and uh, elder teams are going to be those that we trust each other. We listen to one another. We don't uh, all have, have an idea and move forward without regard to how others might, uh, might have for us. So it's very practical in that regard. So, so that's the story in a nutshell. And now I want to give you, uh, well, first of all, this is a cliffhanger, right? So next week you'll hear what happens, you know, after Esther goes to the king. I suspect you can guess. But I'll leave it there, and I want to share five principles. I'm not going to call them applications because I want you to apply them. But they're biblical principles that come out of what uh, this, this story that we've just been reading. They're, they're God things. They're, they're how God would have us um, respond to this. The first one in this is this, sorrow and repentance go hand in hand. And I've already shared quite a bit about this. But one of the conclusions, at least for myself, is I need to grieve more. I need to lament more. I, I need to ex explain and call back to God in the pain and sorrow and challenge and difficulty in my life instead of always just trying to fix everything. And I need to allow that in others as well. Uh, we, we, God uses grief, God uses difficulty, God uses my pain to bring me to repentance. I, I'm standing before you today as a, as a 
child of God because of grief. Because my parents got divorced when I was 19 years old and I was so miserable and so sad and calling out and crying out to God, is there anything more to life than this family thing? And when he responded, it's so amazing to have been brought into relationship with him because I found myself in need of repentance and, and to turn my life over to him. I didn't even know about that, but that's how God works and, and, and I think we ought to embrace it and we ought to be aware that God might be doing that in those around us. The second principle I'll share and let you apply is that we are often part of God's solution to the problems that we see. So when you see something wrong, when you uh, really feel that God has laid something on your heart, don't be surprised if God is also going to use you to fix whatever's wrong. Uh, Esther didn't know that at first, but she was drawn in after uh, seeing Mordecai wailing at the, at the, the gate and wanting to help and wanting to comfort him. She, didn't, she found out that she was going to have a much bigger role in this whole situation. And it's, it's a little bit like, like the idea of when you ask somebody how they're doing, really ask them how they're doing and then be willing to hear an answer. And Because you know what, if you ask someone how they're doing and you don't care, it's sort of like you're just taking a survey. You know? It's just a platitude. It doesn't have anything, it's, there's no benefit to either one of you. And so you just both go fine and then you just move on and you're like, phew, phew. They didn't say anything important, you know. If you ever experience that, take, start slowing down as you interact with people. Okay, now I'm doing application for you. I'll let the Lord speak to you about that. That's just maybe what's on my heart. Uh, but when, when we are part of God's solution, it's, it's a joyful thing. It's not always expected. Um, and so here, and here's another one. Ask more questions than you might be. I'm doing it again. I'm preaching at you. I'm just going to do it anyway. You know, as counselors, we do need to ask good questions. And when somebody says they're struggling or you can tell they are, it's worth it to ask and figure out what might really be going on in their lives and uh, without trying to solve things too quickly. Um, Esther tried to solve Mordecai's lament without really knowing what was going on. And uh, she did well to, uh, as a good counselor to ask good questions. All right, a third principle, which is that fear is normal, but we can overcome fear. We can overcome it through mutual encouragement and corporate prayer and going to the Word of God. One another, the Word of God, and our relationship with God himself. Those are the things that help us to overcome fear. Esther was initially terrified and with good reason that, uh, that her, uh, it, her inaction, though, would have been even worse. And so um, if your life is marked with consistent fear, if you find yourself to be a person that's kind of terrified most of the time, um, you might need to call that, that fear what it is, which is sin, um, and, and reach out to God, and not just say that that's just who you are. Um, because we need to start getting good counsel from one another, and we need to be willing to be used by God to overcome this kind of fear. I ran across just an amazing little teaching from an old Puritan named... Richard Baxter, he talked at length in a paper about fear and the, the reality of it, the good parts, and then the sinful parts. And five quick things that earmark sinful fear. The first one is a, a distrust in God. And, that, and we, would, we would call not trusting God sin, wouldn't we? And there's times when our fear is based out of not trusting him. The second part is that we ignore the fact that God is sovereign. Or maybe even worse yet, we're scared of it. 
Uh, and so that, that kind of fear can sometimes grip us when we get fatalistic about the idea that God is in control. And then thirdly, we wonder if he's good. We might, we might embrace that God is sovereign, but not believe he's good. Can you, what a horrible and terrifying thing that would be. An all-powerful God that we're not sure is good. That, that is a really, really scary moment for me. Um, and then we also have the failure to pray and the failure to praise and give glory to God. And that sometimes happens when we're so scared that we can't think to talk to God and pray. And so when our fear causes us not to be praising him, not to be in fellowship, not to be uh, praying, then that's, that's sin. I, I, maybe it's understandable, maybe it's part of the human condition, but it's sin and we need to repent of it. And finally, if our fear is primarily motivated for self-protection, uh, God doesn't have a lot of use for people that are only protecting themselves all the time. How can you be used by God in, in his kingdom work it, as a soldier if you are just about preserving your own life. And so these things might be helpful if, if you are wrestling with whether or not some of the fear in your life is, uh, is from God or is really uh, sinful and, and needs to be dealt with. Uh, fourthly, the more that we accept that God is in control, the more willingly we're going to give up the control that we thought we had. Kind of a mouthful, but you know, when we, when we accept God at his word that he's powerful, uh, we are going to trust him we're going to find ourselves in his rest we're going to realize we really don't have control and therefore we're going to pray all the more because i can't control the circumstances around me so then as we wrestle with that and wrestle with god's goodness we we come to a point by by the grace of god that we can believe that he's good we can accept that he's powerful and that in the name of christ we can enter into a rest the rest that comes from not having to fix everything ourselves because God is in control. In a moment, I'm going to turn us to Hebrews chapter 4. In fact, you can, you can go over to chapter 4 right now and in preparation there's a, a verse we're going to get to. But the whole of chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews is about the Sabbath rest of God. It's just, when I read it, I just kind of breathe a sigh of relief. I, I just feel like comfortable, like wow, I can rest from the labor of, and all of the fears, all the burdens, all the struggles uh, because, because of Christ and because of the hope that we have in God. And this brings us to our last application here, and that is this, that the throne of God is nothing like the throne that Esther approached. The throne of God is nothing like what we're reading in this book. She went before him like the cowardly lion was in front of the Wizard of Oz, this terrifying, and by the way, when I was a little kid and I saw that movie, I was scared to death. I would have done exactly what the lion did. It was just like brutally frightening. And that's how this king has kind of got himself out in front of everybody. Only, you know, it's, it's actually kind of real. He actually had power. Oz was kind of a make-believe guy, but, but the king really did have the power over or life and death over everybody. And the th there was a sense of terror, of dread, of, of judgment. And you know what? Sometimes when we're coming to God, we, we, there's this leftover echo from, from the past that we, we sort of think God might be that way. We're scared to death of him. We don't want to talk to him because he might find out how bad we are. Uh, we might, he might want to uh, enact his vengeance right now on us, and, and we're just scared to death. But that is, not, that is exactly the opposite of what the, 
what the throne of God is really like. In the book of Luke, we read the, the story of the, the, of the prodigal son. And when, when the prodigal son repented and returned to the father, the father ran. He ran to him. And he wasn't carrying a scepter or a sword. He, was, he, he ran him with open arms. It was, it's just such a fantastic picture of the passion and the love of God towards us that when we approach his throne with, with repentance, he is there. He welcomes us without, without fear and without any doubt in our minds. And so I just think we need to remember that as we consider how to approach God. So here's what Hebrews 14, uh, 4, 16 says. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and, and find grace in, in, our, in our time of need. That we may find mercy and grace at the throne of God in our time of need. And what a, what a profound different picture that is than what we've been reading about here in the story of Esther. And the, the context of Hebrews uh, chapter 4 is, is twofold. One is it's about entering the rest of God. It's such a, an encouraging thing. The throne of God is, brings about rest and comfort. And then the second one is that Hebrews chapter 4 describes how Jesus Christ is the means to this rest. He is the hope that we have. He is how it, it's possible that we can approach the throne of God. Jesus Christ interceded on our behalf. He took on our sins. He took on our burdens. And they died with him when he died on the cross. He died and, and so did our sin if we will trust him with, with our sin and with our burdens. And in rising from the dead, he conquered. He proved himself to conquer sin, to conquer the worst that our burdens can do to us. And he is now inviting us into relationship with him to, to sit at, not, not so much as, subject but jesus christ is called our brother i mean what a it almost just sounds so radical we we sit at the table at the banquet feast of the lamb as as the bride of christ it's incredible and it's so beautiful and powerful and relational and it's so different than this idea of being subject to an all-powerful wizard or a king who has all this power over us and when we've given our lives to him there is no doubt that we are invited into the throne room we do not have to worry about a scepter being held out to us. His, his arms are always open, and he calls us into his presence. And more specifically, and especially when we've given our lives to him, he indwells us forever. We don't have to go anywhere. He is with us. He is in us. And there is a challenge that in, in Hebrew though, Hebrews, though. There is a condition, and that is putting our faith in Christ. Otherwise, uh, we, we would experience the wrath of God and no rest from our burdens. If we approach the throne of God on our own terms and in our own arrogance. It's exactly the opposite of what God is calling us to do. Our closing is going to be a prayer that I want you to take some time to uh, meditate on. It's on the screen up in front of you, and I'm going to let you fill in the blanks of how this applies. What I urge you to do, if you have never, if you have never entered into the rest of God, this is your time to do that. Your, your time is to to bow before the throne of God, repent. You've had, you've had the wailing and grieving, no doubt, we all have, and now it's time to grieve before God of, uh, of our sin and that we would give ourselves and our lives to him and trust him with, with our lives. And for many of us, we've walked with God for years, but we have burdens that we can't carry. They're way too hard. 
there's things that have happened to you, to us, that have been, they're not possible to be dealt with on human terms. It's like Mordecai and his, his action uh, causing the destruction of a whole people. Or maybe it's just that you feel like, what is the point of the rest of my life? The pain is too great. So that's the, the idea of giving our burdens to him. To be, to be so contrite and so broken over our, our need for him that we would completely trust him with our, with our lives. You know, earlier I was speculating and talking about the relationship between repentance and lamenting. And I will tell you this much. Repentance always, always has grief and lamenting going with it. If we are not sorrowful for our sin, we're not repenting. We're doing something else. We're trying to get away from making mistakes. But repentance always has grief involved, and it's the sorrow for our sin, and it's the sorrow for our weakness, and for uh, the things that we've done that we know that are not in, in accordance with God's will. So I just urge you to take a moment. I, I'm going to give it a minute or so as the... Um, the team is going to come up and, and close us in a song to, um, to just do some business with God. Um, I'm going to give you about a minute, and you probably need more than that, but uh, it's what I'll do now, and, um, and then I'm going to close us in prayer. Um, and I trust that maybe God is doing something in your heart here this morning. So just take a minute of quiet before God, and perhaps this prayer that's on the screen applies to you, and, and make it personal.